0: from the am-fm 24 7 radio network broadcasting from am and fm stations around the country Welcome to the Small Business Administration Award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach.
1: Hello, it is Wednesday, the 13th of December. We've got a cram-packed show, two amazing entrepreneurs. First up, John Shigarian one of the largest recyclers in the United States, his story, his entrepreneurial story is amazing. This is going to blow you away after that Colby Goodman. He is an HR entrepreneur with best first. Now hire the best candidate first. Now, cool story. Let's go. We got to get started. we got a cram packed show. You know, one of my favorite things is discovering new industries, things that I really just didn't even know about and our first guest today is going to do that. He's already giggling at me. Please welcome John <laughs> Shigarian. He is the world's largest recycler of electronic data. It's a fascinating business. It's called ERI Direct. He has been very active as an entre- uh, entrepreneur prior to this with some very successful startups. He was the guy behind financial aid.com. You can guess what it does for, uh, people trying to get financial aid for school, he started and ran addicted.com. Also engage is one of his platforms, which is a really cool platform for getting booked uh, for speeches, or also if you want to book a once in a lifetime Type of event you can do it there. Currently, the business ERI has been in uh, in business for over twenty years, and we're going to learn a lot about recycling old data stuff. Eight billion pounds a year is that right, John? Welcome. How are
0: you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm great. Thank you, and thanks, Jim, for having me today. Yeah, electronic waste is the fastest growing solid waste stream in the world. So, um, we've been in business 20 years, but when you think about electronic waste, just think about our old televisions and radios uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Now, electronics have become ubiquitous to our lives. So the Garmin watches that we wear, or Apple watches, and the uh, and the and the Aura rings, and the rings that take all of our uh, that go around our one of our whatever fingers that we want and capture all our data and think about the ring that just captures anyone who comes up to your house or the uh, nest at your house that, you know, uh, manages all of your temperatures. We even have now EVs, and EVs have become computers on wheels. So we've become, in 20 short years, uh, the, the largest uh, recycler of both electronic waste and also the data that's contained therein of this waste in, in the United States and North America and probably the world.
1: I just didn't have any idea that this happened. I thought when you threw a TV away, it just sat in yeah. the landfill.
0: Yeah, well, that's what it did 30 years ago. Once we invented this company back in 2002, which is now almost 21 years ago, uh, with my co-founding partners, Aaron Blum, Kevin Dillon, Tammy Shigarian, we were the ones that said, no, you keep this stuff out of landfills or lakes or rivers or from being shipped abroad illegally and you recycle it here domestically. And then about 98% of the materials that come out of all our old electronics, whether it's um, an old uh, radio, television, whether it's your cell phone or a laptop or tablet or anything else in between, uh, we can recover about 98% of the commodities. And the commodities, in order of magnitude, are shredded steel, shredded Plastic, uh, aluminum, copper, gold, silver, lead, palladium, and some other trace materials. And all those materials then go back into the circular economy. So when you keep it above ground and you recycle it responsibly, it's a great story because none of it has to go into our landfills, which therefore will go and pollute our environment.
1: All right, say, John, my child shoots a Nerf football thing at my big screen TV and it cracks the TV screen. It's so gonna have to throw it away, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh you know all of six months old, the Costco special. Yep. How does yep. that TV end up in your facility and yeah. and then what how much stuff can you get out of it that's <laughs> worth about what? Can you walk me through that scenario? Yeah.
0: yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well depending on where the TV went, if it went back to Costco we, we recycle everything for Costco. That goes back to them. So it would come back to us. If it went to Waste Management or Republic Services, the two largest waste companies in North America, we recycle for them uh, as well. So it comes back to us either through your waste provider, uh, through your city which we have about 500 cities under contract from LA to New York and about 500 cities in between or the waste providers or the retailers. And we'll come back to our facilities and then we'll do a little bit of hand dismantling. We'll take the screen off. Uh, and, uh, and then the rest goes into our proprietary shredding machine and then it gets shred into commodities. And, uh, Those commodities include the ones I just mentioned, the steel, the plastic, the aluminum, the copper, and then all the the, the trace trace, uh, uh, precious metals, silver, gold, lead, palladium. And uh, that all gets, uh, we get paid for that material. And we get paid for it. And that pays for the responsible recycling of these materials. And uh, everyone wins. The environment wins. Uh, the circular economy wins because we don't have to go mine this new material and further degrade the environment by mining for new aluminum or gold or silver. It's, you keep it above ground, now you have more material, and, uh, and it's a win-win for everybody. So we get back all the stuff from Best Buy. We're the ones who created the collection program for them from Staples, Costco, Target, and, uh, and then all the big waste companies and the cities and lots of other folks in between. And they all pay you to take this stuff, right? That's correct as well, because it's a service. Just like legal uh, legal, and accounting are services, uh, uh, this is a service. So we get paid a service, yes.
1: And then... Do you have trucks that come around and get it? How many vehicles do you operate, and how many people are at your facilities total? John? Yeah, we
0: have we have we we created this business. It was just the four of us working out of our my home, and now we have about 980 employees across the United States, and we have only about 30 trucks because the rest are either delivered. By, uh, by our clients. They deliver it to us in their trucks, or we hire third-party carriers. So we have about 30 big trucks ourselves, but then we, are, we have, uh, you know, logistics is a big expense for us, over $10 million a year just in freight fees. And, and then also our, our wonderful clients, like I've mentioned, Best Buy, Costco, Staples, they deliver to us as well. So it's a little bit of a mix of everything.
1: And then eight big facilities that chop this stuff up yeah where are they? Yeah, How actually, are they what's that look like
0: yeah yeah two million square feet across america including uh seattle washington denver colorado fresno california dallas texas Baden, north carolina uh plainfield indiana new jersey massachusetts and we have offices in columbus ohio new york city Los Angeles, and uh, Fresno, California, and many other cities, Nashville, and many other cities across America.
1: What was your very first customer there? How did it start? Go back and tell us some entrepreneurial (laughs) 20-year-old history,
0: John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our first... Well, a lot, you know, it's a great question. Uh, our first big city customer, was City of L.A., so we're proud to give them a great shout-out. They were green onto this green stuff very early in about 2006, and our first big retailer uh, was Best Buy. They called us out to Minneapolis, and uh, we, we we co-created their take-back program, which has been the most successful take-back, consumer take-back program in the world. And it was really... Um, uh really, really an honor to work with both the City of LA and Best Buy. But those are those all uh, aha moments, Jim, where you say, Maybe we're on to something bigger than we thought, bigger than we originally dreamed, and um and we grew from there. But that was uh,
1: not your first customer, that was your first big customer, right? How did Yeah how did yeah? You yeah, started yeah, yeah. with ones and twosies, didn't you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. People would come to our facility and, and drop off. Like they would drop off their old television. They drop off their old, um, you know, a uh, uh, truckload of, of, of old junk, what was considered old junk. Remember, Jim, this stuff used to go to scrap yards. So it was changing a whole cultural mindset of how this stuff would get treated and or would go to garbage. So it was either going to garbage or going to scrap yards. So it was literally uh, a paradigm shift in the United States on um, keeping this stuff above ground and recycling it responsibly.
1: Very interesting. Is the recycling industry
0: overall profitable I don't want to ask what your margins yeah, are, but yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a great question. You know, recycling historically has gotten a bad name in the United States. And and that's not fair really, because when done correctly, when done responsibly, but run like a real business. And my wife came out of running a real business. She ran a big food company before she came here. I came out of financial aid.com was running a real big com with my two partners there, Mike and, and Matt O'Brien. And uh, yeah, you know, when run the right way, Then yes, it can be a very lucrative and successful business. Because, like I tell people, there's a lot of new generation kids out there that are coming up that uh, got a formal education in sustainability and they really want to do good they just don't want to make a paycheck they just they they actually uh, they just don't they they um they want to make they want to make the world a better place too they just don't want to make a paycheck and uh and i tell them first you got to focus on making a profitable business because you can't change the world unless your business sustained it has to be a sustainable business itself and so sharing that lesson with the next generation is really important. This is not just about doing good. It's also about doing well and making a profit. And you can make a profit, and you can make an impact in your community and in the, and in the world and in the environment at the same time. They run parallel when done correctly.
1: I quote an old-time Atlanta radio guy who said, I've never seen a poor person hire anybody. And, you know, I, I, I think you, That's true. you know, my problem with the environmental movement, John, is that it's not yeah. for profit. I think that if you figured out how to do the whole thing for profit, we wouldn't have That's any right. problems at all. And instead of complaining, exactly right. they should be putting their thoughts on that.
0: That's exactly right. You figure out a profitable way to make an impact, a positive impact on the environment, on the planet, and the world will be a, 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 basically a path to your door. And that's what's happened here. You know, just as an example, Jim, we've never opened a facility and not had a problem within a year from opening it where we had to get it expanded. We've always had to expand. I think in Plainfield, we expanded Four different times in Plainfield, Indiana, in Fresno, Fresno, six different times. We've had to grow our buildings or get new real estate. So it's, it's a great business when done the right way.
1: What about the finance piece? John, did you have to raise a lot of money along the way or were yeah. you able to grow it internally on Bootstrap? Uh, just uh, on your, it was a bit,
0: be- it was a mixture of both. There was a mixture of both. The first, we first raised uh, $12 million and that was friends and family that have followed me from deal to deal and had success and things of that sort. That was our original seed round of money. Then from there, we raised only strategic money. So to date, we've only raised $32 million. The other strategic money has come from Two different, three different groups. Uh, one, it came from LS M&M, which is owned by the LG family out of South Korea. They're the lar- second largest copper and precious metal smelter in the world. So they not only invested in us in 2008, but they get all our copper and precious metals. So it really, they, they were on to this closed loop circular economy stuff very early in the game. So they've sat on our board and invested in 2008. A, a couple of years later, Alcoa, the great brand Alcoa that we all grew up with, because of recycling cans and aluminum that we all grew up with, understanding who Alcoa was, and they're still about 149 years or so old, and they invested in us and get all our aluminum, and they did that in 2010. Then in 2020, a gentleman who uh, named J.V. Straubel invested, and he uh, was a co-founder of Tesla, and he ran Tesla with Elon Musk for 17 or 18 years, then decided he saw a problem there that there was going to be a problem recycling the batteries, uh, the EV batteries. So then he started Redwood Materials, which has now become the largest lithium ion battery recycling company in the world. And they, and he had Redwood, uh, invest in us again. So they get all our lithium ion batteries. So again, a circular economy story, just like Alcoa and, uh, And just like LSM&M, so we've only taken strategic investors after that first 12 million, so to date we've taken in a total of $32 million so for a company that's both a technological company like we consider ourselves, but also um, an industrialized company as well, and manufacturing or demanufacturing company to be more specific um, $32 million is really not a lot of money and um, and uh, within the rest we did right out of profits, and we've grown this thing straight out of profits and, uh, and not taken any dividends or anything like that and just done it all out of profits.
1: And are you going to go public? What are you going to do with it? You're just going to sell it <laughs> big to waste management or somebody like that? Uh, uh,
0: uh, well that's you know that's you know you know it's a great question Jim and I and and whenever I grow in a company like financial uh, and 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 now ERI and then engage let's engage is for people who want to find engage they can go to let'sengage.com. Well but my I have a mantra I say listen Let's not worry about things we don't we can't control. Let's put our head down and worry about what we can control. Say hyper focused on building a great business, a business that we can be proud of, a business a business that's profitable, a business that lives up to our mission statement uh, of and our core values uh, and and things of that such. And uh, and then and then and then and then people will find us the people the right the right opportunity will come our way when it's time and we stay very very focused on our core values which are which I'll just I'll list a couple for you. We're very customer obsessed. That's our number one core value. We're also innovators. We still run this place like a startup. Every company I'm involved with, we even though it's 21 years old or so, we run it like a startup. It keeps a good energy and culture to the brand. We're also accountable. We have to be accountable to ourselves and we have to be accountable to our, to our, uh, to our clients as well. We're very diverse and inclusive because diversity and inclusivity actually creates better thinking and better innovation and better ideas. But we also act as one team, and we also act fast. Every second counts. And uh, and that's basically our core values. And when we st- we stay hyper-focused on that and not worry about all the stuff that the media can inundate us with and, and actually, frankly, overwhelm us with, um, then good results happen. So I really don't know what's going to happen at the end of the road here. I'm 61, Jim. I feel like I'm 30 in terms of energy and in terms of clarity in like terms of Sound yeah, like I mean, yeah, and uh, and I'm more excited than ever before because the world has actually caught up with us. There's more electronics than ever before. There's a whole generation of of 35 year olds or younger that really love what we do and are supporting what we do by getting us all their electronics. And um, and so to me, it's like uh, the fun has only begun. We're only in the top of the second inning.
1: Yeah, I can see a huge PR campaign rolled around you going public where you let the 25 year olds know there is a responsible way to get rid of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and yep. make You're it right. a, a social responsibility to go to your store and clean out our closet yep. and take it to ERI. You have that responsibility. Yeah. You know, th-
0: That's yep. a great campaign. You're, you're absolutely right. That's exactly how we're marketing it. And that's, a, that's exactly our messaging and people responding it to they because they feel then they can make a difference by just cleaning out their, their either their attic or their garage or their closets, or they're just their drawers in their office or their home. And now they get us all their old junk, wires, cables, phones, th- tablets, stuff that's just laying around. I have and, a stack uh,
1: of nine abandoned laptops. <laughs>
0: And, and you know what? That's literally the EPA number. That's literally the EPA number that uh, of how much old stuff that people usually store. It's between 9 and 17 items per family. And so you're right on the money, Jim.
1: Oh, that's just laptops, though. We've got a bunch of the other <laughs> stuff, too. So we're okay. way past the 17 as a family. You know, okay. Uh,
0: so... <laughs> That's great. But that's but that's really the beauty of it. Everyone has an e-waste issue. Everyone has and everyone. And along with the electronics, the great news is this. We also destroy your data that's contained therein. We don't want Jim Beach's information information getting into the hands of the wrong people just because he was kind enough and smart enough to recycle his old tablets, cell phones, and anything else that's data containing. So we make sure and ensure. So we've gone out of our way to get all of our, the, the right certifications and specifications done for all of our facilities to lock them down in terms of data, dis- uh, responsible data destruction and uh, and our brands that, that we handle care about that and the public at large that we also uh, handle their materials care about it as well.
1: John, one of my pet peeves is college debt. I have four kids, two graduated and two that are still in mm. middle school. My God, mm. The, mm. the difference there but the two older ones went to state schools. I think they could have gotten Mm. into much better, but they went to state schools. They had a combination of academic athletic scholarships. Uh, some, I think one of them got a Masonic scholarship out of the blue. Uh, they both had jobs and they both worked, you know, and they graduated with not a cent of college debt, not one cent of college debt. It's beautiful. I think they have a better life now because of that. They can buy a house sooner. You know, just the implications just uh, snowball quickly. There, I hate college debt. I think it's a big
0: mistake. Mm. What are mm-hmm. your thoughts on my pet peeve? <coughs> my thoughts are, you're right. I was very lucky. Uh, that my, my dad uh, similarly supported my brother and I and uh, was a big believer in education. And we also were able to graduate without the burden around our neck of of, of, of college debt. But unfortunately, Jim, what I learned when I started financialaid.com with my two partners back in 1998, that was the year Google was founded. Sounds crazy. Sounds like another lifetime ago, but it also feels like yesterday. We saw that there was a massive gap, a gap in people that could afford, and then people who couldn't afford. Plus, Also, people didn't even know where that information was. Uh, They didn't know how to apply for financial aid. So we democratized the process and put it online and tried to help uh, people find the right ways to get, first of all, we had the biggest grant and uh, finder to start with. So we started with, how did you get free money to go to get a higher education? So we started with the biggest grant finder. That brought a lot of people to our website, then we also then had student lending opportunities, Stafford Plus and consolidation loans. And what we realized is that these kids, when they get out, the ones that are burdened with full full loads, full boats, it's, it's a very big burden. And yeah, we have, we have, we have created a systemology and, and we sold our company in 2004, but I'm, I'm sad to tell you this, Jim, you're not only right, But the system still is broken and many companies have come and followed in our footsteps and built nice brands that fill the help fill the gaps and help get kids educated and help find the money. But still burdening them with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt when they're 24 years old or 26 years old or 22 years old. Is a tremendous burden on them, and uh, and, and and good on you, good on you, dad, that you got the first two through and they have no debt because it's a huge, it's a the, the skies are a lot bluer when you don't have that kind of debt at 22 or 23 years old.
1: And they both got it ish degrees and mm. ones at Salesforce. And the mm, other one at 22, brand. John, listen to this at 22, got a job making mm. over a hundred thousand dollars a year, running one of the largest websites in the restaurant world, um, at 22 Jim, and that was there Jim. for two weeks and got a 14% raise,
0: you know? So Jim, good on you. You did, you did, you know, listen at the end of the day people are not going to remember me so much as what brands I've created or remember you similarly for how much money you made or didn't make. What they're going to remember you and me for is how do our kids turn out? Really, how do our kids turn out? And what kind of people do they become? And what kind of focus do they have? And what kind of futures? And are they nice people? And the fact that your kids are out, of two of them are out already of school with with college educations, and they already are unbelievably employed. Salesforce is one of the greatest brands in the world. I've had the I've had the total honor to meet Mark Benioff in my travels and uh, and actually interview them on my podcast. Um, and uh, they're just lovely people doing great things, and also uh, running a website. is something I know little about. So for your other child to be doing that and making the kind of money he's making, those are future girl, industries. She's a girl. It Oh, girl. Well, few, few, you, you know, websites and uh, the internet and IT are still part of the future uh, of the of the economy. So that's all good on you, Jim. And uh, and now you got two left. You got two left to get through the process. Good you got grief. two through and two two. <laughs> two I was at left. the
1: finish line, John. I was at the finish
0: line. <laughs> What's your number
1: one uh, pet peeve? Uh, advice? The thing that you feel like every 21 year old needs to know what's the, the one thing you're obsessed with sharing. I'll it.
0: I'm going to give it to you straight. There aren't, there ain't no shortcuts, but hard work, the harder I work, the harder I work, Jim, the luckier I get. It's just that simple. And, uh, and, uh, and there's been no shortcuts for me in my life. There's no shortcuts for anybody that I've met that's had any success in their life. And, uh, and, and, they, and for the 21s that are out, out, out there, you're not going to become the next Kim Kardashian. You're not going to become the next big influencer. Just put your head down, find something you love, and just go at it day and night and just uh, and make a big future for yourself.
1: John Shigarian, everybody, how do you want us to follow you online, learn more about recycling, buy the book. Go we didn't even it. talk about the book. I'm sorry. He's author That's of okay. the insecurity of everything, how hardware data security is becoming the most important topic in the world. It's a couple of <laughs> years old now, five-star yeah. rated with over two, I'm sorry, 120 Five-star review, so very damn uh, impressive.
0: Thank you. Uh, uh, just find us. If you want to recycle your stuff, if you want to make the world a better place, if you want to make your house cleaner or your office cleaner or improve your community, just go to www.eri Ernie Richard Ingrid, direct dot com E-R-I-Direct.com. and and jim i just want to say thanks for you doing your show and thanks for interviewing me today i really appreciate the time to educate your audience and get the word out there and uh and we love what we do and we're happy to take anyone's electronics and recycle them and make sure also all their data goes away too
1: john thank you so much for being with us great stuff We are back in again. Thank you so much for being with us. Very excited to introduce another great guest. Please welcome Colby Goodman to the show. He can be found at bestfirstnow.com. And the URL really tells us a lot. What he's trying to do is help you find the best candidate First, instead of going through three or four hires before you finally find somebody, what he does is he works with owner operators like doctors and dentists and vets and attorneys and CPAs and works with them so that instead of hiring average, they start hiring true problem solvers. In the last decade, he's helped 5,000 such situations. Colby, welcome to the show. How you doing?
2: I'm doing great. How are you today?
1: I am well. You've been on CBS and HuffPost and LA Weekly and all over and worked with some great people like Panasonic, uh, Marriott, um, some amazing companies, Sherm, of course. Uh, How did I do describing what you do? Tell us about Best First Now, your words.
2: Yeah,
3: I think you hit it on the head there. You know, uh, it's funny. We... We do bridges really well. We work on operations. We work on supply chain. We work on marketing. But when it comes to hiring, I think we're still kind of in the dark ages. A lot of us are. We're we're posting job descriptions that are years, if not decades, old, um, and we're we're going about hiring in a way that has been with business for decades. And I don't think it's evolved as much as it needs to to help your listeners take the pain and suffering out of mishires. Like you said, I'm here to help my clients uh, hire the best, hire them first and hire them now, because I have found that too many people are going about this process in an unstructured and unstrategic way that makes them have to kiss a lot of frogs, so to speak, waste a lot of time and energy, and maybe even most importantly, flush a lot of money down the drain only to be left empty-handed with somebody who can't do the job in the first place.
1: Uh, I think you really hit my personal nail on the head when you said <laughs> unstructured. I I was horrible at hiring. Uh, my first hire was well, he was just there already using our fax machine almost every day. So we might <laughs> as well hire him. I'm serious, Colby. Uh, that's how we hired Justin. He was with us forever, but. It never got much better. We then hired, oh, you're sleeping with them. They must be good. Bring them on. (laughs) That was our next operational method. And then it was, oh, you used to sleep with them. Oh, okay. That's good enough. (laughs) Uh, You know, we were horrible at this. Uh, and I don't know that I've gotten any better in the subsequent 20 years. So what
3: what should it look like?
1: walk us through best practice, you know?
3: And you touched on it earlier, you know, I didn't even go out there and if you could see it on every job posting across LinkedIn, Indeed, Glassdoor, Craigslist, people are, cur- are traditionally looking for others to do a job, to check a box, to bring skills, right? But as business owners, as, as effective leaders, we don't just want to hire a cog in the machine yet. That's what we're asking for in these job descriptions. That's what, we ask for in interviews. That's how we develop, you know, rapport and responsibility. We need to shift away from looking for simply people to do a job and for the right experts to partner with us to solve our most important problems. And that's where I come in to help my clients strategize their process is to really look at what are your pain points? What are your issues? What opportunities are you missing? Because you are lacking the right kind of expertise, perspective, and attitude that your next
2: new hire needs to bring.
1: All right. So when you work with an organization like Marriott, you're helping them hire hundreds and hundreds of people all around the world, right? At a macro level. So
3: So, it's, yeah. So I'm working with managers who are, who have experienced a ton of pain and suffering when it comes to this process, whether it's they're getting too many applicants, right? They're getting in the hundreds, if not thousands, and and it's impossible for them to weed through the noise or the opposite, they're getting ones and twos. And so there needs to be a recalibration of, of the outreach and the marketing of the job description, or people are, they're getting ghosted in the process, they're hiring, they're getting people in the process, but they're not hearing back, they're not presenting offers, offers are getting rejected, but where a lot of my clients come to me in pain and and frustration is that they have high turnover rates, usually under one year post hire. And so when I hear and see that it's about, okay, what is the message? Let's bring it back all the way to the evaluation stage and helping these managers shift their process, shift their mindset and stop with the approach of,
2: well, we've always done it this way when it comes to hiring right
1: well I, if the turnover is so high maybe the job just sucks and,
3: and that is absolutely something I come across right and so it's helping evaluate the job and the culture and helping again making them, helping a leader develop themselves to develop a team and a team of people who are excited to be presented with challenges to help the business grow and thrive. Again, I don't, uh, us as human beings, we don't simply want to exist, right? We are seeking positive challenge. Um, We like stress if it's the right kind of stress. Scientifically, it's called eustress, which is positive stress versus de-stress, which is a lot of people experience in their careers. And so if you can put yourself out there as a business, as a leader, looking for somebody who is excited by challenge, you then take away the cogniz, for lack of a better term, in a role, um, and you get people excited to contribute and, and own the solution versus simply just being on a, a boring uh, process line, uh, an assembly factory and, you know, of information and typing that gets people checked out that gets people's productivity to plummet and to get them
2: leaving you quicker, um, and and resulting in higher turnover.
1: All right. makes a lot of sense. As a, say we're a five person shop Colby Mm -hmm. and we need to hire number six, a marketing person. And we want a full-time person for the first time. Walk Mm -hmm. me through what we should do as a best practice. How, how should we go about that? uh, yeah. Probably with the whole thing, so, the post, absolutely. where to post, everywhere.
3: <laughs> well, so the question I would ask you first here is, what, why is now the right time to bring this person on board, right? Are you looking to scale? Um, are, you, you know, are you running out of leads? Like, Why is this person necessary now? What is the urgency here? Cause that's gonna help me understand what are those real pain points? Right? So let's say it's a positive challenge, right? We have established ourselves, you know, you have established yourself as a, um, leader in the market, but, uh, maybe not the right people know you or you're expanding to a new vertical. Okay. Well, maybe you need an expert in that vertical. Maybe you need an expert who can help you in tackling a formalized process, not only in developing strategy, but also executing that strategy. Um, and really understanding what, again, what are those problems you want to solve? Is it outreach? Is it engagement? Is it more leads? Is it higher closes? Getting really in granular about the desired outcomes, because then from there, once we know kind of what our end result can be, we can reverse engineer what we need that person to be, what we need them to come with to then develop a job description that not only showcases traditionally you know what experience we want you to have, what education we'd prefer, what skill sets we need you to have, but also in that job description, outline in detail what problems we want them to solve. because we don't also, you know on top of marketing to our customers, we need to be marketing actively to our potential candidates. And if you are simply putting out, a job description that looks and sounds like everybody else's. There is zero differentiation, and at that point, you are playing the candidate lottery and just hoping that the right person falls in your lap. And so, by being strategic in the language and the content of the job posting, and getting it in front of the right people, right? I think you know LinkedIn, Indeed, Glassdoor. I think the big players are still good, but it's also then strategizing. Where are the experts, you know, the expert that you need, where are a lot of them congregating? So working with my clients to engage with local professional organizations, um, you know, alumni associations,
2: uh, you know, professional certification groups to kind of go where everybody's congregating anyways and promote in those areas as well.
1: All right. And what about... The sorting of the resumes say I've got Mm -hmm. a good post, I'm getting in, you know, a hundred resumes, I, you know, whatever one lands the highest on the flight of stairs uh, must be the best. (laughs) So what other advice can you give other than making sure that you interview the guy. Hi. You know, I, am I, I Nicole, but you ever watched any of these dating shows or any of these marriage shows, oh, wow, you wow, know, wow. where the experts put the couple together. <laughs> I have been in the room where those sort of matches have happened. It's mm-hmm. this guy. Oh, oh, we need a, you know, a green guy. Oh, this is a green girl. Well, they're a can't, they're a match then, <laughs> you know, it's so razor thin. the, mm-hmm quote unquote expert match on this kind of stuff. So help me here.
3: Yeah. So I think, so when you say we have a hundred resumes, right? In my opinion, that's too many. You have opened the door too wide and have let too many false positives in the room. And so what we would need to do is to then set up a process to help those who are really serious about you in your organization's buy-in and those who are on the fence or who are just spamming applications make them choose out. And so it's adding things like, let's say, let's take your example here of the marketing person, right? I would put in, um, into your job posting as a requirement of applications, please submit, um, you know, a, a, a five sentence Facebook ad about your candidacy with your application, right? Give enough barren entry so you're not getting everybody, provide an opportunity to test skills and abilities and expertise that you need, but don't make it so high that your assets will do a ton of work and they'll just bypass you. So it is a sweet spot about fi- putting in those barriers to entry, those hurdles to entry for the application that helps people buy in. Cause then from there we want to ideally get between, I would say 25 and 45 applications. And I would encourage people to screen, to have 10 to 15 minute calls with each one of those people. Right, because you a resume gets you far. It's, it punches your ticket to the show, but you want to see how somebody performs. Um, and then from there, asking quickly in those conversations, treating the call less like an evaluation of an employee, but as a vendor you're trying to hire and engage with. Judge their expertise, measure their curiosity, see how they can understand quickly your problems. Right. Be an open book. And if then from there, there's residency, that person vibes well, you feel like there's a skill fit, an expertise fit and a culture fit. Then that's when you have them commit to a longer, you know, 60 to 90 minute conversation or series of conversations to meet with major players in your company to see, can they back up what's on their resume and what's on, you know, in that 50 minute conversation
2: and are they asking you the right questions to understand how they can have the biggest impact on you from day one?
1: All right, and from those, uh, that's you said twenty-five people at fifteen minutes time. Mm-hmm. Then I go down to what three, four from there.
3: Yeah, so I would what? say three to five is kind of your sweet spot, and then you know, doing your best to eliminate it as much as possible. I think ultimately, for my clients, the 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 best problem that we can have is if we are struggling between two to three people that we absolutely love, right? Um, and that's done through asking the right questions, having conversations, right? Kind of blowing up the preconceived notion of what a professional interview is, so that you're asking questions that go deeper, that test somebody's not only their knowledge but their helps you understand their logic, their thought process, their problem solving ability and ultimately having a conversation that they cannot fully prepare for in advance. That's thing. with so many resources online, with artificial intelligence, with all these technical tools in our, you know, at our desks, and in our pockets, um, you can perform for 30, 60, 90 minutes if you understand what's coming at you. Right. But your goal is to blow all that up. So you get to know the person, dig, you know, kind of cut through all the crap of a traditional interrogation style interview so that you can really resonate with a human
2: being and understand their expertise and how it impacts you and your business moving forward.
1: Colby, great information. I love it. Let's switch gears entirely, please. Let's talk (laughs) now about football and the linebacker position. No, I'm saying, t- okay. I don't know a damn thing <laughs> about it. I don't even know what linebacker, if that's on offense or defense, let's talk about the entrepreneurship now behind this. At mm-hmm. what point did you switch from being an employee to the owner and how did you get your first client and etc. cetera, yeah. et cetera. Tell us your entrepreneurial history, you know, going back as far as you yeah. want to. Um, <laughs>
3: I came out of college uh, probably, at, uh, I mean, I, it, one of the worst times in the last 20 years, in 20, uh, 20, uh, 2008, came out of college and was scared uh, out of my pants. I was kind of in the toilet. I didn't know what I was gonna do. Uh, graduated college with a degree, definitely did not want my parents to be my next roommates and scrambled. And I kind of took the first thing that was given to me, which was working IT help desk support um at a pretty large company here locally in Southern California. Um, it was all aesthetically sound to, you know, kind of put to get took apart and put together the VCR when I was a kid. And so it was a natural progression. Um, over, you know, the next few years, was able to rise in the ranks in in that industry, was able to get leadership roles, pay raises, be on put on more interesting and important projects despite not having the technical background compared to my peers. Now, fast forward to the end of my tenure in corporate America, I was working with people that I could not stand on projects. I did not care about making people. I never met a bunch of money. And I kind of woke up one day and said, this is not the value that I want to put into the world. This is, I don't see myself doing this until retirement. It sounds like a slow death. And so as I started to do some introspection, some self-evaluation, a lot of reading and research, kind of realized that what I was really good at was human connection, was leveraging curiosity, and was strategic ownership slash self-promotion. I was able to get better jobs, make more money, get more interesting projects, because I advocated for myself and and help people understand why my involvement in all of these things actually benefited them. So strategic self-sales, I guess. And as I did that, I said, okay, this obviously is something that not everybody does, because I was the only one amongst my technical peers who was climbing that ladder. And I said, well, there's got to be a way to teach this. And so my first business, um, I started a career coaching and consulting business where I helped individuals of all backgrounds, uh, IT, accounting, sales, engineering, you name it, I've worked with them to help them take more ownership and more purpose of their careers through self-advocacy and through strategy. Now, through you know, through that, um, and helping over you know thousands of people, was able to get purview to every horror story, every cringeworthy experience, every maddening um interaction that my clients who are, you know, I would argue, and I'm biased, who are um, self-choosing, who are overachievers, who are looking to invest in themselves and be better. I think the types of people any manager would love to have, they were getting consciously and unconsciously driven away from organizations and from bosses. And it happened time and time again. And I think, well, these people can't be, these managers, these leaders, these businesses cannot be doing this on purpose. If they knew what was in front of them, they would want these people on their team. And so what I did is started my current company, Best First Now, to go to the other side of the interview table and work with organizations who, like we said before, maybe lack a strategy, maybe have used the same one for a very long time, don't have the time, energy, or resources to really evaluate how to shift their hiring practice. Um, And work on an organizational and down to the individual manager level to shift the mindsets, to develop a plan of action, and to execute a candidate experience and a hiring strategy
2: that attracts the right people, that gets them to buy in, and gets them to be there for a long time. All right, we'll keep going. Uh, First client and all that kind of stuff. Very- I mean, for
3: those of you, yeah, for, you know, your listeners out there who are going from zero to one client, um, kind of <laughs> my best advice and what I did is ask for forgiveness and permission. And so I went to my peers and I said, Hey, I'm going to write your
2: resume for you.
3: I'm going to buy you a cup of coffee and I'm going to tell you how to interview and you kind
2: of kindly and gently force them to be your customer. And then in return, you ask for feedback, Right, Those
3: first one to 20, 30 clients are not you doing your job. It's you there to collect customer feedback and action on it. And so my first you know dozen or so clients were pro bono. And I learned so much from going out there and actually getting in front of my customer, delivering service, delivering support, and then, per- and then receiving and actioning on feedback. So my big thing to your clients is just go out there and do the thing. Cause right now you're in a learning process, right? You, you're, you are embarking on ideally a for-profit master's program in business ownership. But if you are waiting in the wings and I can definitely test this and having to read one more book or make one more tweak on your website or get those business cards made first, none of that matters until
2: you get out there and actually start talking and engaging with your customers.
1: And then how does the first paycheck come in? How do you convert from the freebie to the pay?
2: Oh man, that's so hard,
3: right? Because there's so much imposter syndrome. There's so much um, self-doubt. And also you you fear rejection, right? You you obviously want to be doing this. You're passionate about it. But what if you're delusional and nobody wants to pay you to do the thing? So what I would encourage your listeners to do is as you ask for that money, also know at first it's gonna be way too little. (laughs) I look back at my first invoices and they were pennies, right? But you'll get the courage, you'll get the, the confidence to ask for more. But as you ask for that, you know, you send out that first invoice, you have to be very clear both to your customer and also to yourself. What is the value that you're bringing, right? And not just what the deliverable is, what the widget is, what the time is. What does the value mean? And for me, the value meant for my customers is, you know, you're going to pay me X dollars an hour to coach you, but it means you're going to be able to make five, 10, 20, you know, a hundred percent more just in that first annual year of salary, right? My current clients pay me, to help maximize the productivity of their employees, to make sure that they don't encounter the pain of of wasted money in the future. And so it's not just simply what you're doing, it's the future value of it. And so if you ever encounter imposter syndrome or fear in sending out an invoice or asking for a dollar amount, don't look at it as I'm getting paid for what I do. You don't get paid for what you do. You get paid for the value and the impact that you bring. And as long as you're clear about that, maybe first to yourself and then to your customer, that's when things start really taking off.
1: How do I say that politely? I'm getting paid (laughs) because I know stuff. How do I say that politely?
3: I think, you know, you say I'm here to help you get as much value out of this engagement as possible. I've learned all the lessons, I've done all the experiments, I've made all the failures, that is gonna help me help you shortcut all of that. I'm gonna save you time, I'm definitely gonna save you money, if not make you money, but I think more importantly, as you know, survivalist beings that like humans are, I'm gonna save you so much pain and suffering. So you don't have to go through it yourself, you don't have to go through it alone, and you can have an expert in your corner when you have a question, when you have
2: a concern, so that you're not stuck and continue to suffer um, longer than you have to.
1: What's your favorite thing about the holiday season? We're here in the middle of it. Uh, what is it today? It's December thirteenth. Uh, what's your favorite part of the entire holiday season? You know, I'm not I think for a me religious thing. Yeah. You know, just <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to live
3: in uh, the the self-proclaimed America's finest city of San Diego, California, and so we don't have we've never had, and and maybe hopefully, God for God willing, we'll never have a white Christmas, but it is cooler. Uh, it rains a bit. It's it's gray, and I uh, the older I get, the more I like this kind of weather. I can put on my sweats. I can pull up the blankets. Um, my wife and I and our two-year-old get snuggle on the couch and watch cartoons, and it just is a time to slow down and practice presence you know it's not i think it's it's coincidental on a purpose that you know thanksgiving a, a time of thanks a time of you know a, a gratitude and reflection with thanks uh, with christmas excuse me and then starting anew in the new year all happens within about five weeks and what i love about it is the slowing down this gratitude this family and this reflection um and i mean if i'm being totally honest a, a nice excuse to probably overeat more than I'd like
2: to admit.
1: And with a two-year-old, you have the fun of creating new traditions and new, Oh man. Uh, yeah. Warping new minds and lying, you know, redoing generational lies about certain things, you know, and <laughs> so that's fun. Too. Yeah. Kind of pushing that forward a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That those new traditions and kind of,
3: I think, you know, you say that and I also think of, I think giving thanks for the traditions that were created. I think as we're kids, we just kind of think this is what always happens, but you kind of forget like it takes effort to, you know, to get everybody in the van and to go around and get hot cocoa and do caroling or, you know, to go all the way out to the middle of the forest and cut down your own tree. You know now that I'm a dad, I have much more appreciation for my own and so I think again it's it's going back to that reflection and that gratitude for the life that you've been given and the life that you're trying to create for future generations.
1: Colby, how do we find out more follow you online yeah. learn more about best first now, et cetera please
3: yeah um, if your listeners are interested in getting some help in hiring kind of taking the chaos and the guesswork and the luck out of hiring their next important investment in their business which is their next employee head over to bestfirstnow.com sign up for a free consultation call we'd love to learn more about your business your struggles and if i can help um on socials, the best way the best place to follow me as on linkedin uh just search colby goodman k-o-l-b-y is the first name goodman as in the man i am a good man um and would appreciate a follow a connection and feel free to reach out
1: Great stuff, Colby. Thank you so much for being with us, and happy holidays to you and your family. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. We're out of time, but you know what that means. That means we will come back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care. God bless, and go make a million dollars. Bye now.